Welcome to Careers and Mental Health Conversations. This is the podcast where we discuss career counselling, career guidance, mental health awareness and mental health training in the workplace. With your hosts, Patrick, Sally, Tina and Amy. Welcome to another episode of Careers and Mental Health Conversations. I'm your host, Tina Winchester, and today I'm joined by Mitch Wallace. Mitch is a social entrepreneur and the founder of the Heart on My Sleeve movement, the fastest growing social movement on the internet dedicated to helping those experiencing or supporting others with mental health challenges. So welcome to Mitch. Thank you very much for having me here, Tina. You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you in the world at the moment? I'm in sunny Sydney today. Oh, and is it it's sunny but cold, is it? Yeah, it's getting a bit chilly at the moment, which isn't great, but, you know, we, we, we roll with the cycles, right? For sure. It's cold. It was cold in Brisbane this morning. I didn't like it. It reminded me of home. <laughs> yeah, where's home for you? Um, yeah, in the UK. I'm from the southeast. Okay, nice. And even though I've been here a long time, like 12 years, I still, whenever it gets cold, I think, oh, no, I don't like that. You got a touch of Russell Brand uh, in your accent. Is are you guys from similar areas? I'm glad you said the accent and not the beard. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not that. <laughs> right. So, Mitch, um, we follow you at the Career Development Centre and Mentally Well Workplaces. We follow you on social media and uh, on LinkedIn and Instagram. And the work that you're doing is is phenomenal. So, but first of all, before we talk about that. How did you learn to put such good social content out there? Is it, was it something that you were involved in or is it just something that you're a natural at? <laughs> I think all millennials, unfortunately, are just so saturated and surrounded by it. It's like, uh, it's kind of just like the air you breathe, you know. And, and so it was so second nature to me to show up there. Um, and I showed up there for so long so so well in in my old life that I'm like how do I transfer my ambition for wanting to be seen as an absolute legend who's got his shit together into how do I show the real side just as impactfully um and so I take a lot of inspiration from people like Jay Shetty um Russell Brand uh and and the and the guys who are really trying to create a conscious community but doing so in a way that's quite viral relevant and you're you're almost trojan horsing a mental health message in by making it so snackable that it's impossibly hard to not get something from it yeah that's it's it's such good content um and the social community so for those people that that don't kind of understand what the so what a social community would be what what is that well, I mean, in its most common form, it's, uh, it's a congregation of people using social media through Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, etc. It can also be something offline um, where people kind of group and join together of uh, like-minded. For, for me, um, it doesn't matter which medium it is. My, my goal and my mission has always been authentic connection. And there's a, that's a very social thing. <laughs> And you're, because I've stalked you, obviously, they have to stalk Good. everybody that comes. I would on. expect no less. Yeah, <laughs> on the podcast. I quite like doing that. <laughs> and your first, was it a vlog or a blog that went viral? The first time you shared um, really kind of open and honest information about yourself that went viral. Um, tell me how that came about. Yeah, I mean, that's what started 
my whole new life. Uh, it started my, the organization that I run now called Heart on My Sleeve, um, whereby I went down to a local beach, told my story with a video camera, released it on Facebook, and within a week it reached over a million people. That night I was on the project on Channel 10, and within a, within a month a global movement started where people all around the world started tattooing and drawing hearts on their arms, coming forward and sharing their story or coming to the community community to listen and receive those stories so it was kind of like the the me too movement or the black lives matter movement but for mental health and um i think the reason why it resonated was because it was so raw so real and it had no kind of hidden agenda or big polished um things behind it it was just a bunch of people coming forward and wanting to connect in the universal humanity of suffering and i think it, it helps that there was that hook to it that you know the drawing the heart and particularly the tattoos because they're quite and, and and for me that wasn't uh that just felt right uh, as a guy that has tattoos as you can see i have a full sleeve now um uh, as a way to make a message that's often so so clinical stifled serious heavy feels so terrible and easy Yes, yeah, so and that it feels natural, that's for sure. So when it went viral, what kind of messages were you getting from people across the world? I mean, I struggle. I, I really like Brene Brown's work around vulnerability, which is that it's not as simple as if you are having a bad day, venting that everything shit on Facebook isn't something to be commended. It's not brave, you know. I think people must think so black and white about bravery and courage. Um, but true bravery and courage is, is, is utilizing parts of yourself that you've worked through in private first that are still maybe uncomfortable to share, but integrated and at peace with who you are in order to help someone else. And there's a few key things in there. The biggest and, and first thing is if you're sharing publicly, you need to have at least familiarize yourself or made friends with those demons. They don't necessarily need to be gone, nor do you need to be over it, but you need to be intimately familiar with them. The second thing is the when you share, you have to share with the purpose being, I'm using this story to help belay someone up the mountain. It's not a way to get attention or sympathy. And of course there is parts of it, big part of it, which is validation of one's own internal reality and appreciation of what you've been through. But um, that, you can't go and do it with with just that intent because otherwise it's too unsafe it's too risky because you know the response to answer your question directly was overwhelmingly positive and i i've screenshotted every single comment post message i've ever got saying how much it helps articulate and put words to feelings and emotions sensations experiences that people have had but never been able to articulate and it's allowed them to feel understood that said there's also people who either don't get it or change the way you act uh, about it. You know, it's definitely the rarity, but it all comes down to people can smell how authentic you're being. Absolutely, they can, that's for sure. So overwhelming response of positivity. Did people share their own stories with you, though? But did it open up the opportunity for people to do that? Yes, which is incredibly positive. Uh, it also has incredibly um, acute risks for me as a person as mitch who then became a bit of a container for for this pain and i was humbled and 
overjoyed by it, but also what are we going to do to protect me and protect these people? And that's why Heart on My Sleeve became more than just a social movement of willy-nilly everywhere. We've, we've, we're in our social organization that provides services to help people do that in the right way. We, we have 10 hours of an e-learning course that helps people tell their story safely. We have peer support programs that gives people containers to put things in and knowing that they have the right boundaries and processes and tools set up to support it. So the social enterprise and the services that we now offer are kind of like defense mechanisms that I use to keep me safe. <laughs> yeah, so it grew. Like it, it was amazing how much it's grown, really. So, And your intent at the time was just to share your own kind of story and then here you are offering um, services and support. Did you? Is this something that you imagined in the future or did it evolve? It's funny because whenever I see people on stage, like I went to Post Malone on, um, he's, a, he's one of my favorite musicians uh, on Tuesday night and he closed his show by saying, you know, I, I just thank you so much for letting, for, for, for everyone letting me sing my songs in front of you. I remember my mum bought me a guitar at seven and all I've wanted to do is tell stories through music. And I just resonated with that so much that like, it really has been like a rock star mentality for me in that, all I've ever wanted to do was make sense of who I was. And if I ever got to do even that impartial, I want to share that with as many people as I can. So since I've been a little kid, I've just, I've wanted to be happy. I've wanted to be healthy, but I've been obsessed with psychology, obsessed, like, you know, buying books, reading everything I get my hands on, meditating, having, having conversations with people at an age where I shouldn't understand stuff and just being like, why is the world the way that it is, you know? And, um, even in my darkest hour, I remember when I was like properly screwed uh, at the time, I was in a million pieces running along the river in New York down the West Side Highway. And um, I was crying as I was running because I, was, I, I would find it hard to stop crying at any point during the day. It was hard to breathe, but all I could do was picture me standing on a stage in front of people in a position of strength and thanking my mom for helping me stay alive. And she was in the front row. And it was literally like, and at that stage, there was clouds everywhere in my mind. And it was like four and a half, five months later that that was a reality. Yeah. It's like, I was standing on stage in front of my mom. Had you ever used that technique before? It wasn't a technique. It, it was like, this wasn't that happened. It was a belief system and a, a, a want and a desire so so metallic in its coating that nothing could pierce its boundaries that I've, I, I didn't know what it would look like, but I was so sure that if I was going to go through it, um, if I was going to get through what, like the eye of the storm, not out of the storm, but the eye of it, uh, I was going to do my best to change the world. And there was not a doubt in me. And you are. Little bits. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's humbling to know that, I'm helping at all. There's a lot more work to do, and, and but I'm very thankful for what I'm allowed to do to be in service every day. Yeah. So your own journey, if, if you could share a little bit of that for, for any of our listeners that are experiencing issues themselves. So your own journey, you were quite young, weren't you, when you first experienced mental health problems? Yeah, I was about seven years old when my mum first saw me repetitively touching the dashboard of her car um saying the word god over and over and over and she kind of stopped me and said what are you doing and i said i don't know i'm just always upset i'm always feel guilty and i think that i'm a bad person 
and for someone of that age to be holding that stuff isn't good. Uh, so we went to the doctor and the doctor said, Mitch has obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. And I didn't know what that meant other than something's wrong with me, really wrong with me. And I carried that for pretty much all of my life up until I would say two and a half years ago. Um, I held that belief structure. Um, I held the belief structure I was a bad person. I held the belief structure I was a crazy person. And I definitely held the narrative and belief structure that I had to do it alone. And they're kind of the three stories that I've trying, that I've, I've worked through. And I, I, I do believe mental illness is an infection of narratives more than anything else. It is incorrect, uh, non-contextualized uh, stories and narratives that are fragmented and not integrated into who we are that makes that blocks us from being able to make sense of the world and 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 who we are and i think that's where the the mind starts getting into a mode of defense and defenses are essentially the illness um it is anything in excess that is mental illness and so i think if the antidote to mental ill health is um is integration integration is acceptance and letting go of toxic stories and i think the the enabler of that if that's the outcome how you get there um or the approach that i use with heart on my sleeve and i talk to harvard psychiatrists about this to validate the research and it all comes back to healthy connected relationships it is the greatest tool we have and so that's what i focus on see i'm reading um lost connections at the moment you know, ah. Ari, have you read that it's on my to-do list. I've been suggested a few times. Yeah, you, sh- you should, because uh, the, the whole concept of uh, lost connections is, is the theme that runs through the books. And I, I heard about Johan's book through uh, Osher Ginsberg's podcasts. I mean, his podcasts are just phenomenal, the people that he gets on there and the stories that they tell. Um, but yeah, Johan's um, research that took him all around the world to understand his own depression, um, being prescribed antidepressants at 18 and, um, uh, you know, and then up in the, the, the dose and up in the dose and changing the medication, trying to get the regimen right and what have you. Um, he went all around the world to kind of um, research what is it that's causing us to become so unwell mentally now and um connections was was what the research showed that connected a loss of connection with people a loss of connection with community um and a need for a purpose and 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 a you know sense of uh, being able to contribute to the community you've got some awesome stories in there yeah it's um so I'll definitely read that. Thank you. And for the, uh, another recommendation, the universe is trying to tell me something. <laughs> right. And um, uh, what's interesting is, so, so if, if we agree on the logic thus far, which is the, the outcome of good mental health is integration and acceptance of, of toxic storylines and transforming that into a cohesive and coherent sense of self um, that is in a state of defensivelessness and we're saying, okay, that's step one. Step two is how we get there is connected relationships and love, um, more so than genetics or anything else. I think how you get to the relationships and connection, uh, i.e. the tactics that fulfill that strategy, the technology is conversation. Mm. Com- conversation is the currency of the economy of relationships. And so what I try and do is create new conversations between people and, and within oneself. That's really good. Really good. So when you were seven, what kind of 
support did the GP recommend to kind of help with the symptoms that you were experiencing? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I can't say I ever got, I tried many times to get professional help throughout my life, but it was only until three years ago that that worked. And there's two reasons why. The first is that, well, three reasons. The first is I was petrified. I was petrified of someone telling me I was crazy. I was petrified of the truth. I, I was mentally ill because <laughs> mm. uh, I was in a state of defense. And there was, n- there was no way my brain, body, or anything else was letting in or accepting any truth that threatened my story, narrative, or sense of self. The second thing is, is that when I did try, I never felt like anyone really got me. I, I, would, I would come in as a quivering child, even as an adult, the quivering child was out, bearing his soul and feeling like, I call it the dreaded left eyebrow raise, which is that. of a second where you're like, shit, I don't think they got that. And if they can't hold the weight and if I'm slipping through this net, there's nowhere else to slip. And that is a very, very scary position to be in. And so I think maybe that was bad luck, but you know, as a, as a master's degree in psychology now, I feel like I can shit on the industry a bit and it'd be fair. And there's a lot of psychologists out there who don't know how to relate to people to interpersonally. And they, they're so desensitized to it that they forget the extreme sensitivity that someone has when they walk in that office, that you are looking at every single thing that's going on, the color of the waiting room, the shoes that they're wearing. If the psychologist is, is bumping his leg up and down, everything is data that is constructing a narrative of who you are in real time on steroids. Um, and then the, the third thing I would say is that uh, I hadn't found my person yet. So without making the industry wrong or those people wrong, I hadn't found my socket. And I always believed that that was because I was too broken until I saw someone else whose story changed my life and it was the the turning point to everything in my life. Um, And then I felt, holy shit, I can be understood by another person, which means maybe a psychologist can understand me. I'm not too far gone. I just haven't found my person yet. So by flipping that narrative... I then was okay when four, five, six psychologists didn't understand me because I was just like, it'll happen. Mm-hmm. I just haven't found it. And it did. And she, she was the next person to get me to this, this stage. She was one of my three most important people. When I was like, shit, this is a container I've been searching for my whole life where she said to me, I'm going to hold you afloat until you can swim on your own. And I know how to guide you through these waters and these forests because I've walked them before you. And that to me just summarized everything, which was, I'm not trying to fix you. I'm trying to show that you're worthy. She sounds fantastic. She is. She's a rock star. Yeah. It's not an unfamiliar story that not being able to um, establish rapport with a psychologist and then kind of giving up. You know, a lot of people just mm. give up and think, well, maybe, it's, maybe this talking therapy stuff's not going to work for me because... They're a very nice person, but I can't relate to them. Um, and the message that we give to people is that you have to date your psychologists. You've got to date them until you find the right one. Yeah, absolutely you do, 100%. And I think there's a 50 I don't quote me on this, but I think there's a 50% dropout rate with men with the mental health plan in Australia. It's and what's happening it. is they're, they're going to their first therapist that is the hardest thing ever to get to that point for them to say, I need help. And basically what happens is 
it's so painful to get to a I need help decision that once it happens, you're just like, well, I've done all the hard work now. I deserve for this process to be easy. And then the process is hard and then you're like, fuck this. Mm-hmm. You know, this was not what I signed up for. I'm out. This whole thing was a stupid idea. But if people knew that actually that getting to that point is really hard and let's just take a second, appreciate that, see someone in that journey to get to that point and then reset because it's not the last step and support people to go step two and then step three because it's going to still be bumpy, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. So your, your wonderful psychologist is one of the um, supports that you've got around you. The other two people, you said there were three people. I mean, I'm thankful to have uh, heaps of people who really care about me. Um, I don't take that for granted for a second. I would say there are three people who have been turning points, not necessarily ongoing supporters. And that was the video I saw online, um, that therapist I found in Seattle, and my mum. I mean, those three have been the most influential. But then there are people that surround that, i.e. my dad, my stepdad, my two best mates, Brenton and Dave, my girlfriend at the time, Jenny. Um, there has been lots of people who are there. And now my, you know, I've got a team. I reckon I see at any one point like four or five different types of therapists. One's a coach, one's a counsellor, one's a psychologist. I've got a GP slash psychiatrist. I've got a... Um, I got mentors. I got like I'm just a big fan of connecting with people who care. Yeah, and you've surrounded yourself with them. Oh, absolutely! It is a fort. It is an army of people who who support me because everyone needs the dominoes around them. Yeah, and you support them back, no doubt. It's you know it's reciprocal. Correct. Their support enables me to then go and be that person for so many others. Like actually. Um, if anyone's like, Mitch, you've done a good job with heart on my sleeve. I'm like, you're not really thanking me. You're thanking all the people that are right now holding me up because that's the only way I'm doing this is through them. Um, I'm just the vessel that they're working through or allowing to operate. Mitch, when you were at work, when you were in um, the corporate workspace and you worked for Microsoft, didn't you? Correct. Seven years. Yeah. Um, when your mental health wasn't good, can you tell me something um, around what you would have liked to have seen in terms of support in your workplace if it had been available? And I'm not knocking Microsoft um, no. because all workplaces are, um, you know, operate differently and there's no best practice workplace for mentally well workplaces. What would you have liked to have had around you for support um, and what was really very detrimental in terms of the workplace for you? Um, that's a big question. So I'm going to unpack it in a few ways. The first is Microsoft rocks. And I'm fortunate enough now to be going back into them and I'm their mental health vendor for Microsoft Australia. So that feels amazing. Right. Um, and I didn't see that story becoming so awesome. And now that it is, it's great. The second thing is, um, we have to first define the boundaries or responsibilities of the workplace. And I believe that that's twofold. The first is the workplace shouldn't make someone worse off than what they were before they came to you or while they're there. So don't contribute to or aggravate or cause mental health issues. The second thing is promote well-being where possible so that person gets to help themselves better than what they could have done if they didn't work for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
So what I didn't say is the workforce is responsible and accountable for fixing people's problems and all the context that someone brings before they work for you or while they work for you outside of work, that that context isn't their problem. So, um, so how does a workforce achieve those two things? Well, I think it's in services and in culture. Um, Microsoft gave me some cool services like access to paid leave, disability insurance, a bunch of stuff. I didn't get offered EAP, but I was in the States when I had my full breakdown, so, um, which was really interesting. Um, and so there were cool services, but not the full gamut that I really would have liked. The second thing is the culture. And I think this is more important than the first. Mm. And I, I want to refer to a law firm who I'm currently working with who recently audited like 27 EAP providers and got them down to like one. And, and they're like, you know, we've gone through this whole process, really proud of it. And I'm like, okay, has anyone ever told a story about that, about using EAP? And they're like, no, that's too private. And I said, okay, so what you've got is the shiny parachute problem which is essentially you filled the plane with all these expensive parachutes that the top of the line services, the best practice, yoga, meditation, whatever. And everyone's jumping out of the plane without a parachute on and they're, you know, they're sinking in the water. And the reason is, is because no one's yet been told either they're allowed to use the parachutes or the parachutes work mm -hmm. um, or that someone successfully landed and come back and jumped again. And so I think if, if services aren't accompanied by culture, i.e. an understanding that it's okay truly to have mental health issues in the workplace and that your career isn't at stake and that services should be utilised without judgement, then they just they have to work together. And so I felt like I was somewhat understood by my manager, but I could almost hear HR just like talking through her and there wasn't a real heartfelt connection of, I don't think you understand just how fucked I am right now. <laughs> so you, it, it sounds as if you did get good support, but there, obviously there's a lot that can be done in, in a lot of workplaces. Um, the, the, I speak to a lot of people um, when we run our mental health awareness workshops and uh, mental health first aid and our EAP. And the one thing that people are concerned about the most as an employee is losing their job. That's one of the reasons why they don't speak up. And I'm assuming that you hear the same kind of thing from people. Yeah, I do. Um, and my response is totally fair. And so consider whether it's the work, right workplace for you, consider if it's the right time to speak up, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other side, the law's there to protect you. A company can't fire you. They, they, they would be in breach of reasonable adjustment duties. Uh, which they have to do um, upon disclosure of a mental health issue. Um, and secondly, uh, trailblazers will always get hit. And so, you know, there is a certain amount of bravery and risk for people who are speaking up at the moment in the workplace. And people will lo lose their job unfairly. Um, and I think that it's changing for sure. I can feel it. And there's, it's changing when I talk to HR teams. The biggest thing is they don't know how to manage it. Mm. So I don't think it's so much that companies are like, you're not allowed to be mentally unwell and work here. I think it's that I don't know what to do with you or about it. And the easiest thing to do is manage you out of the business. Mm. Yeah. Whereas what they should be doing is saying, well, I need more information on this to manage this properly. Yeah. And the information needs to come from the employee that's experiencing the mental health problem themselves. What do you need? 
you know, tell me what you need and not a one size fits all. Um, and there's just a lack of education generally, I think, in society about what, what is mental health, what is mental illness, why are we all susceptible? Because we all are. Um, you know, there's just not enough education out there. There isn't. Not, not if Heart on My Sleeve has something to do with it. And so <laughs> we run education seminars for leaders on a lot of the stuff that the, the, the traditional EAP or Bupa or whatever, not, mm. not to bag them at all, because just saying that it's incredibly tactical, highly EQ-based relationship transformation programs that get people willing, able and confident to be able to have beyond just the mental health 101. Yeah, yeah. So I want to hear a little bit more then about the heart on the sleeve movement and what your plans are moving forward. Yeah, I mean, it's expanded from a social movement, um, from just online sharing stories into a services provider. And, uh, and we specifically focus on three key work streams, which is education and training, um, uh, peer support and accreditation, and storytelling and cultural change initiatives. Uh, and we do that in consumer land and in corporate land. We do that through face-to-face -face and digital interventions. But we, everything accrues back to conversations and connections because that's our technology. That's our yoga. That's our meditation. That's our thing. That's our intervention. Um, and for the reasons that I just said previously, for the linear logic that I, I painted. So the, the, that's kind of the future of Heart on My Sleeve is this services arm that supports its whole intent is to support the social movement so they kind of feed one another the peer-to-peer -peer support work if there's anybody that wants to get involved with your um organization as a uh, in peer-to-peer -peer support um how do they do that yeah so at the moment nothing's available on our website if you logged on it would be like some dude told a story once like what's this guy going on about um, we're about to completely relaunch our website with everything we've been working on behind the scenes over the last 18 months um, in the next kind of two months, I would say. Um, so www.heartonmysleeve.org um, or HOMS.org is, is where you would go. Um, for the moment, reaching out to us directly at contact at heartonmysleeve.org uh, is the best bet. As a corporate, we offer holistic services. As individuals, we're going to offer individual services. So that's the best bet for now. Okay, so you've got a, a big relaunch in a couple of months, yeah? Yeah. Good. That sounds really exciting. I'm grateful to be walking alongside people like yourself and others who are trying to be in service and give back in this space. Yeah, we're all doing the, we're all doing the same thing. We're just doing it in a different kind of way. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mitch. Thank you for the work that you do. If there's anything that the Career Development Centre and Mentally Well Workplaces can do to support you, you just reach out and let us know. We will be sharing this podcast, the links to your um, your website and social media pages far and wide. Um, and then when you relaunch, you let us know, send us new links and we'll share that for you too. We want to help you along as much as we can. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mitch. If you enjoyed this podcast and you would like us to appear in your feed, please hit the subscribe button and you're also welcome to leave us a review. For more information, visit careerdevelopmentcentre.com.au.